Welcome to today's message from First Baptist Church in Divine, Texas, where our mission is to equip all generations to impact lives for Christ. You can find today's message and more information at www.fbcdivine.org. Now, let's listen to the latest teaching from First Baptist Church, Divine. Let me read for you beginning in verse 9 of Romans chapter 12. The Word of God reads, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. I want to start by asking a question. What is love? What is love? Well, I'll tell you that poets and philosophers and theologians and artists have attempted to answer that question for a very long time by seeking to offer to you and I a definition of that four-letter word. Songwriters have too. Did you know that there are more songs that have been written about love than any other topic in the world? You didn't know that. I want to give you a few examples or a few songs about love. It's the Partridge family who sang, I think I love you. It's Olivia Newton-John who confessed, I honestly love you. It's the Doors who said, hello, I love you, won't you tell me your name? It's Justin Bieber who piped in, I just need somebody to love. It's the Beatles who said, all you need is love, but they added, but you can't buy me love. Roxette claimed it must have been love. Robert Palmer was addicted to love, and 10CC declared, I'm not in love. Elvis Presley crooned, love me tender, and hunka hunka burn in love. Usher blamed the DJ God has fallen in love again, and Stevie Wonder just called to say, I love you. Kesha said, your love is my drug, and Ray Charles sang, I can't stop loving you. But Air Supply admitted that we're all out of love. And Kenny begged Ruby, don't take your love to town. Tim told Faith, it's your love. While Taylor Swift wrote a song, a love story. Dolly wrote it and Whitney sang it. I will always love you. Jackie DeShannon said it best when she sang, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. And then some songs exist that just ask questions about love. It's the spinners who asked, could it be I'm falling in love? Or Jefferson Airplane who asked, don't you want somebody to love? To which Tina Turner answered, what's love got to do with it? And the Bee Gees and the Brothers Gibb just wanted to know, how deep is your love? And then Sir Elton John sang in The Lion King and he asked, can we feel the love tonight? And Hathaway summed it up all by asking, what is love? What is love? Well, the world seeks to answer that question often. 
Kiddos even offer answers to that question from time to time. They were A couple of them were asked how they define love, and I want to give you some of their answers. A five-year-old said, love is when a girl puts on perfume and a, and a boy puts on shaving cologne, and then they go out all night and smell each other. An eight-year-old said, love is when you kiss all the time. And then when you get tired of kissing, you still want to be together, and you talk more. A seven-year-old said, when you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and stars come out of you. A six-year-old said, love is when your puppy licks your face even after you left him alone all day. And a five-year-old said, I know my older sister loves me because she gives me all her, new cl- her, her old clothes and has to go out and buy new ones. And another eight-year-old said, you really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot because people forget. What is love? It kind of depends on the situation, right? And yet, for you and I, love is supposed to be the primary marker of our life in Christ as followers of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's Jesus who said in John chapter 13, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus also taught that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, Jesus said. You shall love your neighbors as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. And at times, you got to admit this, at times we're prone to giving in to these catchy slogans. These things that you know as one-liners that we print on our t-shirts or we get on our coffee mugs. And it's not that any one of these things are essentially wrong. My caution to these things, though, is that we just come to accepting them without grasping the depth of them or the why behind them. And there's one that comes to mind for me this morning, and I don't want us to just accept it at the outright without understanding the depth and the magnitude of it. And it's a call that everything we do as followers of Christ in some way comes under this heading. That you and I as followers of Christ are to love God and love one another. Now, I want to remind us as we start of the ground that we've covered in the first few verses of Romans chapter 12 where we have found that Paul has been describing for our benefit what our response is to the amazing grace and mercy of God. For you and I and for those in the family of faith, God's grace has given to you a relationship with God through Jesus Christ that you do not deserve. While God's mercy has spared you the judgment you do deserve for your sin. And when the Holy Spirit calls you to put your faith in Jesus Christ, it's not a call to a faith where Jesus is just acting like some airline attendant who's checking your ticket to board the plane to heaven. And if you've ever flown a plane, you know that beyond saying whether you can board the plane or not, the attendant has no influence upon your life. And sometimes people approach Jesus with that type of mentality. If you will... What Paul is saying in response to the grace and the mercy of God that we have, been in, we have entrusted ourselves to in the gospel. Paul is saying, in light of all that God has willingly accomplished on the cross, in the life and in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this, Romans chapter 12, is how you respond. And he says, 
that we are to offer our bodies, we are to offer our lives, we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God. Or said another way, it's the German theologian and Christian martyr during World War II, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who expressed it this way in the opening chapters of his book, The Cost of Discipleship, that I know some of you have been reading. He says this about the life that Christ calls us into. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and to work to follow him. Or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. The death of the old man at his call. And Bonhoeffer talks about the sense of the death of the old man. And he does not mean the physical death that awaits each of us. But what he does mean, are, what he's speaking about, are the passions and the desires and the behaviors of our life that existed before we met Jesus Christ, that in our death, those things begin to fade away. They begin to be put to death because the Spirit of the living God is transforming us from who we were before we met Jesus into who we are now because we have met Him. And that is a process of the Holy Spirit that comes about as our minds are renewed. It doesn't happen all at once at times. And I will tell you, for me, and maybe this is the case for you, patience with ourselves can wear thin as we struggle to live lives that honor Jesus. That's why I think the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in the midst of this transformational work of the gospel applied to us, we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, though the old man's been being put to death as we're raised to life in Christ, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And a part of that renewing work of the Spirit involves how we view ourselves. Remember the caution from last week that we saw in verse 3 where Paul said, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. This means that we are to take a balanced view of ourselves as individuals who are deeply loved and lovable individuals who have worth and meaning given to us as children adopted by the Father, but also individuals whose lives are marked by sin and failure and shortcoming and fault. And therefore, we are deeply loved people who are in need of God's forgiveness and grace. And when we take that truly humble view of ourselves, we're set free to serve God and even to love others, even as we'll find next week, to love our enemies as God loves us. That's all to remind us of where we've been. So look with me at the beginning of verse 9. He transitions in this way. Paul says, let love be genuine. Now, I know in in this translation it says, it, it looks like it says, let love be genuine. But in the original language that Paul wrote this in, there's no verb and there's no command. It simply says, the love sincere. Or another literal translation is, love unhypocritical. This sounds more like a heading, doesn't it? Now, it's certainly appropriate to translate it as let love be genuine. That's obviously included in the meaning of a heading like the love sincere. 
But it also helps us understand that what Paul is doing here is describing that sincere love as it's lived out in the body of Christ, as it's lived out through you and I in the church. These are practical, real-world ways to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And also real-world ways to love those we might in some other way consider our enemies. Those who might seek to malign us. Those who might seek to speak against us. What's he saying? He's saying that love in the body, love in the church, is sincere. The, the word sincere literally means no pretending, no play acting. He's telling us love without hypocrisy. And the word hypocrisy or the word hypocrite, it originally comes from the, the drama, the stage, if you will, of, of ancient times. It originally comes from the theater. And it could have had a, a positive or a negative connotation. If it was in the positive, it would be in the sense that a good actor or a good actress could play any part that was assigned to them without losing a sense of who they really were. But if it was used in the negative, when someone is playing, uh, pretending to be something off the stage, pretending to be something that they aren't or do something that they really aren't, they're deceivers. They're not who they are. They're deceiving everybody to think that they're something that they're not. It's Pastor Chuck Swindoll who said, if hypocrisy creeps in, love ceases to be. Uh, love ceases to be love and becomes something grotesque. He says it becomes manipulation, quid pro quo, com competition, and pretense. Sincere love, genuine love, these things are not manipulative. They are not competitive. In fact, genuine love seeks to love the other even if they are unable or even if they are unwilling to love you back in return. Genuine love is real. It's true. So it's with that heading that we begin to read the rest. It says, abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Well, know this, love is also discerning. It doesn't embrace evil. It embraces that which is ultimately and purely good in the eyes of God. It abhors, or if you will, it takes a step back from that which is evil. In other words, when it encounters evil, it refuses to participate. That doesn't mean it, it hides or it seeks to hurt the evildoer. It doesn't mean that there's a list of people, by the way, who are acceptable to come into church and a list of people who are unacceptable to come into church. Nor is there a list of acceptable friends to, or nor a list of unacceptable friends. Think about this through the lens by which we've been studying in Luke, by the way. Jesus was friends with all kinds of people that the good religious people wouldn't spend any time at all with. Think about it. Jesus was friends with the, the lying, cheating tax collectors. He was friends with the, the unclean, unwholesome prostitutes. He hung out with the smelly, uneducated fishermen. And he even spent time around those who were sick, those who were diseased, those who were maimed, those who were handicapped in some way, and those who were once even demon-possessed. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't participate in the prostitution. Jesus didn't participate in the fraud of the tax collectors. Although for the, those good religious folk, it probably looked like that's what he was doing. We have 
to be discerning about this because we cannot define love in whatever way we want it to be defined. That's what the world's trying to do right now, right? See, it's been described in this way that love is like a a mighty flowing river, but the thing about a river is that it's got two banks on either side, okay? The boundaries by which it cannot overflow. And one side is truth, That is what the Word of God says about this. And the other side is the discernment of good and evil, or if you will, the discernment of right and wrong. We have to keep that intention. We also come to verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. The one good way in which we we love, the one good way in which love can be competitive is in seeking to outdo one another in honoring and respecting others. Love doesn't seek to make a name for itself. It seeks to make a name for the other person. As followers of Jesus, we are a people who are otherwise pretty incompatible. Think about that for a moment. How compatible are you with everyone else in this church right now? Sure, there's a couple of Cowboys jerseys here. We have that in common. But yesterday, not many of us would have been wearing the same jersey if we were just talking about football, right? We all hold in common that most of us are kind of sad about yesterday's results for a number of reasons. But we come together as an incompatible people to love one another. We're eager to do that. It's who we are. If you will look with me now at verses 11 through 13. Reminding you of what Seth read for us out of 1 Corinthians 13. If that chapter is a powerful and poetic and beautiful and, com- and complete description of love, our passage this morning is the most succinct description of love. Now, what it lacks in poetry, it makes up for with punch. It's short, it's clipped, but it has powerful statements. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8, verse 8 that says, Love never ends. And here the Bible says the same thing. Now, it's natural for for us as human beings to ebb and flow through everything in life. And it's in our nature to become complacent over time. Think about like when when you first learned to start driving. When you first started driving, to pass that test, you use your turn signal every time you made a lane change, right? How many of you still use your turn signal to make that lane change? Not so much, right? By the way, young people, use that turn signal. It's very meaningful, okay? Or it's like when you, like if if you're married, when you first started dating your spouse, didn't you go above and beyond to dress attractively, to look your best, to be on your best behavior? And yet now when we go out with our spouses on a date and one of them tries to dress nicely, the other one sees and wonders, Who's he dressing for? How do we even get there? It's because complacency has made its way into the marriage. And truthfully, in relationships, there was a time that we worked overtime to look and to act our best and make sure the person we loved knew we loved and cared about them, right? But over time, we lose that, don't we? We stop trying so hard. And the same thing happens in our ability and our desire to love one another in the church. We come along and we go through this long enough and we lose our passion. We lose our desire to to serve each other. 
We just start going through the motions. We lose our passion. We lose our fire for worship. Which, by the way, do those two words describe your state when you entered here? Fire and passion? We also lose our passion for serving. And we lose our passion for loving and caring for one another. If you will, passion leaks like a balloon that has a hole in it. That's true for all of us. And this fire, this passion of which I speak, it's not just an emotional thing. It's more like the sense of determination that keeps you going even when you're being ridiculed, even when you're being made fun of. A sense that says, I'm not going to stop meeting the needs of those in the midst who need help. Whether it's a ride that they need, or a visit that they need, or a contribution they need, or some kind of help around the house. Whatever it is. Because our love and our hospitality never fail. Because love never fails. In fact, Paul tells us to show hospitality there at the end of the verse, does he not? That's an exhortation to you and to me to go out of our way to meet the needs of others and to be hospitable while we do it. And we certainly have our own needs, and yet, as the body of Christ, we are eager to help the weakest in the body in whatever ways we can. That's one aspect that this text introduces. I want us to look at a shift that then takes place in verse 14. Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And the shift that goes on here, it involves our love for those who are outside the body of Christ. In other words, we're talking about how we love people who do not know the grace and do not know the mercy of God. If you will, if love is is one of the defining characteristics of a follower of Jesus Christ, then love for our enemies is a defining characteristic of that love. I mean, there are those who ridicule us. There are those who take stands against us. There are those who don't like us simply because we follow Christ. There are those right now who do not like us simply because we're a church. And for his example, for as many conversations with our neighbors that we enjoyed as we took the gospel at every door and divine this year, there were just as many doors that, that some would slam in our face once they learned that we represented Jesus. Now to be fair, as followers of Jesus, we've given plenty people plenty of reason to not like us. We've become far better known for who and what we're against than who and what we're for. Yet, I want us to not be quick to dismiss the model of Jesus and his love for people. I mean, remember, who did Jesus spend his time with? How did he, how did he treat those good religious people who wanted to stone him? Or, or wanted to run him off a cliff? How did he treat everyone? We've got to remember that to those who've been beat up by the world, those who, when we approach them, give us ugliness, we get to be the breath of fresh air to them. We have to remember that Jesus is a cool drink of water on a hot day for those who've been chewed up and spit out. And friends, as his people, as the body of Christ, we have to have the same sense about us. And that doesn't mean that people will always like us, by the way. People didn't like Jesus. We will And we do take stands in our society that our culture does not appreciate. I can go down a list of them. You know them. But through it all, we love. And that means when we receive hatred, we return that hatred 
love. When our culture ridicules, ridicules or despises us, we don't get aggressive, neither do we get defensive. We keep on loving. We keep on serving. We keep on embracing good and refusing to participate in evil. Did you know that to bless your persecutors is to literally seek God's blessing on them in prayer? I asked the first service, I'll ask you this. For those who are concerned with what's going on in Israel as of yesterday, how many of you woke up praying for Hamas this morning? It's hard stuff, right? We live in a culture and sometimes there's even a thought that that might float around a church like ours that says, if they do it to me, I'm going to give it right back to them. If they say something ugly to me, I get to tell them exactly how I feel in the buffet of four-letter words in my vocabulary. My friends, it is time to get back to following Jesus. My friends, that's where real rubber meets the road stuff is. And I hope that we remember that this is directly from the mouth of Jesus, by the way. We saw this when he was preaching on that plane, that beautiful sermon where he says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who who abuse you. It's another apostle, Peter. When he was talking about Jesus, he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, speaking of Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I need to offer a disclaimer right now. I need to offer a disclaimer because I am well aware of the difficult experiences that some of you have gone through or, God forbid, are going through. The Word of God is not saying that this means that you have to stay with an abusive spouse, nor does it say that you have to stay with an abusive parent or anything like that. The Bible is talking to the church as a whole in relation to society as a whole here. So what does that mean? We are to pray for God's blessing on those who ridicule. Pray for God's blessing upon those who persecute us, both in the small ways and in the large ways. It's a love that sincerely hopes that the evildoer will be led to repent of their sin, just as we were. That they would repent and be transformed. We are a marginalized people. We are a marginalized body repaying cursing with blessing. We come to verses 15 and 16. It says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. I wonder right now, do you feel the rapid fire? Do you, do you sense the, the direct nature of Paul's description of love here? It's not poetic like 1 Corinthians 13, but this sure does pack a punch like a series of body blows. This is what love really is, by the way. Real love is sincere and it's discerning. Real love perseveres. Real love keeps going even when it gets hard. Real love is tough. It's willing to seek God's blessing on even our enemies, just as God loved us when we were His own enemies. And real love refuses to be jealous. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. We tend to do exactly the opposite, don't we? 
We rejoice at the weeping of others, especially our enemies. And we weep at the rejoicing of others. Why is that? Because we're a vindictive people. We've got jealous hearts. When, when someone else has a reason to celebrate, instead of being happy for them, we feel bad about ourselves. We sing, why not me? We're like children saying, they got something we didn't. Or when our kids say, something good happened for them that didn't happen for me. And rather than celebrating the pain of others and mourning the victory of others, friends, as the body of Christ, we join them intimately. We join them in their celebration. We join them in their grief. We meet them where they are. That's what the Lord did when he met you, right? Met you where you were. And Paul then summarizes his description of love in this way. Live in harmony with one another. Harmony doesn't mean we all have, that we all see every issue in the same way. It means that we have an ability to stick together even when we view things differently. How many of us want to do that, though? It's not popular today. When someone says something we disagree with, we blast them, right? We hide behind our social media page and we just put them on blast. Or someone says something we disagree with in church and we go running to another church down the road where the real Christians are right? We have completely lost our ability to stay in relationship with a group of people mostly different than us for a long period of time. This used to be. But we've lost this because we prioritize me, myself. And this is exactly what we're called to be in the body of Christ, though. We're called to live in harmony. For those who are not musically inclined, do you know what a harmony is? In a harmony, the notes aren't all the same. The notes are all different, but they're in sync. Love is sincere. Love is discerning. It keeps going even when it's tough. It's willing to seek the best for those who seek the worst for us. It refuses to be jealous, and it leads to harmony. And that's only possible if it's marked by real humility in the pews and the aisles and the hallways. Lived out by you and me. Why Paul gets it. This associate with the lowly. Associate with those who cannot help your career. Associate with those who cannot help your climb up the social ladder. Associate with them. Not as a superior helper. But as a friend. As an equal. Associate with those who can do nothing for you. Eat with them. Lots of us are going to want to go grab lunch in a minute, right? Invite somebody. Laugh with them. Cry with them. My friends, do you hear this right now? Do you hear what Paul is saying? This is real friendship. This is real love. Not for your own gain. Not at all. It was Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, who tells of two lawyers he knows they used to hate each other. They were partners in the same firm. One of them one day became a Christian, and he asked Bright, now that I'm a Christian, what should I do with my partner? And Bright said, you know, why don't you, why don't you speak with him? Why don't you ask him to forgive you and tell him you love him? And this new Christian lawyer says, you know, I could never do that. I don't love him. And that lawyer in that response put his finger squarely on one of the greatest challenges in the life of a Christian. 
One of the greatest challenges in the life of the Christian. One hand, everybody wants to be loved. But on the other hand, many people never experience it. That's why we need to learn as, to love as Christ loves. We can't manufacture this. This love, it only comes from God. And it's a love that draws people to Jesus. It's Bright who goes on to say, you know, I prayed with that attorney after that exchange. And the next morning, he meets his partner. He tells his partner, you know, I've become a Christian. And I want to ask you to forgive me for every wrong I've done, every hurt that I've done to you, and to tell you that I love you. He did that. Do you know what the other partner did? The other partner was so surprised, he fell under a sense of conviction, and he too asked for forgiveness from the now Christian partner. And he says, you know, I'd like to become a Christian. Would you tell me how? You see what love can do. We sing about it. We sing about it a lot. But do you see what it can do? You see, we are a body of mostly incompatible people who I pray are eager to love one another. We are a body full of needs who I pray are eager to help the weakest. We are a body maligned who I pray are yet repaying cursing with blessing. We are a body filled with people of different experiences who I pray are united in humble harmony. We are a body who represents our King who eagerly loves us and died on a cross so that we can be reconciled with God. We are a body who represents our King who has met our needs most ultimately and most supremely. Salvation. We are a body who represents our king that when he was cursed, he blessed. And despite the wide array of our diversity, we are a body who is united under the same banner of our king who alone is able to bring all things into submission. What is love? Love is life-giving. Love is transforming. Love is forgiving. Love is reconciling. And if you'll let me submit to you this, love is Christ. Thank you for tuning in to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church Divine, located at 308 West Hondo Avenue in Divine, Texas. We invite you to be our guests at our 8.30 a.m. or 11 a.m. services each Sunday. You can find more information about First Baptist Church Divine at www.fbcdivine.org, where our mission is to equip all generations to impact lives for Christ. Until next time, may God bless you and keep you.